amazing chapter two as we continue to make our way through Paul's letter. You're welcome to use the black Bibles in the pews in front of you if you don't have one. Outside of the temple courts in Jerusalem in the days of the Apostle Paul, there stood a massive wall that served as a barrier. This barrier was meant to keep the Gentiles outside of the inner courts of the temple. And on this wall, there was written an inscription. We actually have it today. Archaeological digs have found it and brought it to us. And it says this, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. You see, if a Gentile were to enter into the inner courts of the temple, past the Gentile court area where he was permitted and allowed, he would not merely be evicted from the temple, he would be executed. Now, this dividing wall was uh, standing in the days of the Apostle Paul. And it stood as a symbol in his mind of the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. Now, maybe you didn't grow up in the church. You may not understand what I mean when I say Jew and Gentile. Jew is just somebody who is part of Israel, God's chosen people. And Gentile, anybody else in the world. Anybody and everybody who is outside of God's chosen people. Now, it's not very easy for us to grasp the dynamics of Jew and Gentile tensions because, well, we just don't really think that way anymore in terms of Jew and Gentile. But grasping the understanding of uh, human tensions in general shouldn't be that difficult for us, right? You can replace Jew and Gentile with Republican and Democrat and the tension kind of comes alive in our hearts and minds. It seems to make sense again. It seems like hostility is breeding in every crack and crevice of our modern society. The players may have changed, but the game is still the same. And the theme of the second chapter of Ephesians, at least the second half of the second chapter, is reconciliation. So in verses 1 through 10, we saw everything that God the Father was doing through God the Son by the power of God the Spirit to reconcile man back to God. And now, beginning in verse 11 all the way through 22, we're going to see Paul explaining to a church full of recently converted Gentile Christians what God has done in Christ by the power of the Spirit to bring reconciliation back to each other, excuse me, between humans. So vertical reconciliation in verses 1 through 10, horizontal reconciliation in verses 11 through 22. So we'll read about that for ourselves now. Turn with me to verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen? Father, we pray that you would bless your word, that you would use it to change us forever and ever. Amen. I've got three points for you this morning. Point number one, the problem. Point number two, the solution. And point number three, the result. The problem, the solution, and the result. Now, as I've said before at the, in the introduction, and I'm going to say several times throughout the rest of the sermon, it's on purpose, so if it sounds like maybe I've just been hitting the head and I'm kind of stuck on repeat, uh, it's intentional. The, the context of this hostility in verses 11 through 22 is between Jew and Gentile. And what you see in these verses is that Gentiles were separated from God. The reason why they were separated from God is because they were, excuse me, they were separated from the Jews, but they were also relationally separated from God. What you see happening here is that because there was a divide between Gentiles and God, there was also a divide between Gentiles and Jews, God's chosen people. An illustration of this would be if you were to not have a relationship with me, you would also not be able to have a relationship with my wife or my children or anybody else close to me in my family. You have to remember that God formed the Jewish people as an ethnic, political, and spiritual people to serve him as a nation of priests on the earth. So to be a Jew was to be a Jew ethnically. To be a Jew was to be a Jew Jew politically. And to be a Jew was to be a Jew spiritually. And all three of those things were inextricably connected to each other. God called the nation of Israel to be a light in the darkness of a post-Genesis 3 world. The way that he did this was by forming a covenant. If you've been in this church long enough, you probably know our little pocket-sized definition of a covenant. It's a relationship grounded in a promise. So God called Israel to be his people, and he did that by making a promise with them. And the promise that he made was this, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, like most promises in the old world, and some in the new world, there was a promise, uh, there was a sign that accompanied this promise, and the sign was the sign of circumcision. That's what you see Paul talking about in verse 11, when he talks about the uncircumcision and the circumcision. Uh, to be circumcised was a sign of the covenant. You can know how bad the relationships got, had gotten between Jew and Gentile because the uncircumcision that Paul references in verse 11 was actually an epithet used by Jews against Gentiles. But this circumcision was an outward symbol of the promise of God. Now, the obvious and somewhat 
odious implication of this special relationship that God had with his people Israel is that all the other peoples of the earth, everyone who was not a part of this commonwealth called Israel, well, they were separated from God and from his promises. Verse 12, there we see that Paul says that those who were not of Israel were without God in the world. He goes on to say that they also had no hope in this world. God made sweet covenant promises to Israel, but the Gentiles were not inheritors of those promises. God created a theocratic people for him to rule over, but the Gentiles did not get to partake in any of the privileges, benefits, or responsibilities of that God-ruled government. The Gentiles were, as verse 13 says, far off. And because of that, a hostility was born. You see that in verses 14 and 16, Paul describes the relationship between Jew and Gentile as a relationship of hostility. And you, you can see how easily this might happen, right? You have one group of people who are called the chosen people, right? And another group that are the not chosen people. In verses 13 and 17, one group is called far off, while another group is called near. One group asserts that it has a special relationship with God and that nobody else does. One group is called a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Another group is called an alien. Any kind of relationship where these labels exist is a breeding ground for hostility. An imperfect illustration of this would be to think about Jews and Gentiles like two sons in the same family where one is the favorite and the other is the black sheep. You can imagine that there would be some relational friction there. And part of this hostility is understandable, right? We all feel an innate sense that something isn't quite fair when one group claims that they have access to God but another group doesn't, right? We still feel that today when one group says that they're close to God and another group is not close to God. If you were to put yourself in the Gentile shoes for a second and just try to imagine how you might feel if you were told that you didn't have access to God, that you were lost and without hope in the world, how might you feel towards the Jewish nation? Conversely, if you were to put yourself in Jewish shoes, even though God had told you over and over and over and over again that he didn't choose you because of anything special in you, that he actually chose you despite how sinful you were and how stiff-necked you were and how hard-hearted you were, you would still probably have a temptation to pride as God's chosen people. You would still probably find yourself looking down your nose at those who were outside of God's special covenant people. You've probably already seen that in church, right? I mean, this is what we believe about the gospel. We believe that those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ have access to God through Jesus and that those who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ do not have access to God through Jesus. And what should be uh, an air of humility that comes off of us is oftentimes uh, the stench of pride. As Christians, we should know that our salvation is something that God planned before the foundations of the world and that he predestined us to and that it was from first to last the work of God and we can't really take any credit for it and yet we can be people of immense pride. In the South, sometimes that pride can hide behind smiles at church but it's still pride. Now, I've said before that the context of these verses this morning is Jew and Gentile relations in the early church. But that doesn't mean that these verses don't have anything to say to us today. 
Jew and Gentile, you see, is just one way of talking about those who belong to God and those who do not belong to God. In the Old Covenant, to say that somebody was a Jew was to say that they belonged to God. To say that somebody was a Gentile was to say that they didn't. The New Covenant equivalent of that is to think about the church and the world. The church is the collective of those who belong to God. And the world is those who are outside of that collective. And there is a hostility that exists between the church and the world. You can feel it. You can feel it growing every day. Some of this hostility is unavoidable. There's no way that we will be able to be faithful as Christians and not offend our friends, our family, our neighbors. It's just, it's not possible. The bad news of the gospel is offensive. It's like a strong aroma that makes people sick to their stomach. And that's why Jesus said, you will be hated for my namesake. The gospel tells us the truth about ourselves and nobody likes to be told the truth about themselves. But if hostility between the church and the world grows stronger in our day, brothers and sisters, let it not be because of anything that we could avoid. Let it not be because of anything other than the the gospel itself being the offense. Let it not be because we've exalted our culture wars over gospel fidelity on the left or on the right. Let it not be because of petty political tribalism. Let it not be because of uh, our loyalty to our own heritage or skin color or even our own denominations. You know, it absolutely kills me that some believers, excuse me, that some unbelievers won't even listen to what some Christians have to say about the gospel because so many who have the name of Christ have burned all their capital with the world defending or attacking Donald Trump. It just makes no sense to me. It's not your job to defend the president. It's not your job to attack the president. It's your job to pray for the president and to preach the gospel. It drives me insane to see Christians make enemies on social media as they defend or promote CNN or Fox News personalities. That is not something that you should burn your capital on with this world. It makes no sense to me when I see Christians who are willing to alienate themselves with certain cross-sections of society as they argue over things that they know so little about but have such strong opinions on. As they argue over things that may be important but are not eternally important and things that you could probably, you, 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 just, you, just, you can't be certain of. From police shootings to government policy, from cultural Marxism to libertarianism, from the border wall to reparations. You may be right about that, but you may be wrong. But are you really willing to alienate other believers over this? And are you also willing to burn up all the capital that you have with a lost and dying world arguing over things that you could be wrong about? And things that even if you are right about won't save anybody's soul. I'm not telling you not to have opinions. I'm not telling you not to be active socially and politically in your own community. But I am saying this, if you only have a finite amount of capital in this fallen world, right, because your neighbors are hostile towards you, right, like let's remember our unbelieving neighbors are hostile towards us. Why? Because they're hostile to God and we belong to God. 
And because they're hostile to the God that we serve, they're hostile to us. It may not seem like they're hostile when you see them and they smile at the grocery store, but I promise you the hostility exists. And if you only have a finite amount of capital with them, I would only risk offending them over the things that matter eternally, like the gospel, things that you know for a fact that you're right about. I have very strong political opinions, but I try to share very few of them publicly in the life of the church because I could be wrong about that. I mean, I can think about how many times I've changed my mind on a particular political issue. What if I would have spent years burning up my capital on that, but I know I'm not wrong about the gospel. And so if I offend this world, I want to offend the world with the gospel. If people think that I'm a bigot, I want them to think that I'm a bigot because I believe in holiness. If people think that I'm a leftist, I want them to think that I'm a leftist because I believe in a radical gospel of grace. So be wise with the tensions that exist in this world and the hostility that exists between the church and those outside of the church. And burn your capital appropriately. Point number two, the solution. Uh, I have here in my notes to tell you that um, this next part of the lecture, no, excuse me, look it, I'm already getting there, that this next part of the sermon is going to feel a little bit like a lecture. And actually, as I preached through the first point of the sermon, I realized that that kind of felt a little bit like a lecture. But that's okay. Not every sermon can be 45 minutes of us getting our heartstrings plucked, right? Sometimes the Bible calls for us to think and to think deeply about things that are complicated or foreign or strange to us. Paul tells Timothy to think over the things that he's writing because they're going to be difficult to grasp. So I want to encourage you and challenge you to not tune out as we try to think through some complicated language here that Paul uses. Try to put on your thinking caps and exert a little mental elbow grease as we walk through this together. Okay, now look at verse 15 as we study the solution. In verse 15, actually beginning in verse 14, Paul tells us how God has fixed this enmity between Jew and Gentile. So starting in verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, which I referenced at the beginning of the sermon. And it says in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So how did God break down this dividing wall? This, this, how did God extinguish this hostility between Jew and Gentile? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, if you're like me, the first time you hear that as Paul's explanation, you might think, wow, that really actually doesn't explain very much at all, Paul. Uh, I don't really understand what a command expressed in an ordinance is. Okay, so let's try to make sense of that. In order to understand what Paul is saying here, you have to understand that the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai for the Jewish people, that that law was moral, it was civil, and it was ceremonial in nature. Now, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's true. It's moral, it's civil, and it's ceremonial. In other words... The Old Covenant law regulated every aspect of Jewish life. So when I say that the Old Covenant law was moral, what I mean is it regulates one's uh, own private and personal morality. 
So like, think about commands like don't say the Lord's name in vain, right? That's the moral aspect of the law. When I say that it was a civil law, I mean it regulated civic uh, and public morality. So think about uh, boundary lines that were being drawn in, in the Old Testament or what to do if somebody kills your ox, that sort of thing. That's the civil aspect of the law. And then you have the worship aspect, right? The spiritual aspect. And you can think about that in terms of the Passover celebration and the regulations for the temple sacrifices. But the, the point is, is that this law was meant to govern literally every aspect of Jewish life. And it was a good law. It was an eternally good law because it came from an eternally good God. It came from God and expressed God's eternal character. But God's eternal character had to be expressed at a particular place, in a particular time, amongst a particular people from a particular culture, with certain customs, and that, therefore it was expressed as an ordinance. That's what an ordinance is. An ordinance is a local expression of a universal truth or principle. So there's this law of God that's an expression of God's perfect character. And it comes out in commands that are given in ordinances for the old covenant people of God, the Jews. That's what verse 15 means when it talks about commands expressed in ordinances. Now, these ordinances were very specific to the old covenant people of God as an ethnic, spiritual, and political people. They were very much a part of what kept the Jews and the Gentiles separate. And that was on purpose. God designed it that way. God called for his people to be a holy people, to be a separate people, to be a distinct people, so that all of the pagan practices of foreign people didn't seep into the life of his people and corrupt them. But it was never meant to be permanent. This command, these expressions of God's command, these ordinances, they were never meant to be permanent. And you see that in chapter one, right? We already saw in chapter one that God had a plan to redeem Gentiles. He had a plan to bring them into the fold since before the foundation of the world. It wasn't just Jews who were elected and predestined and adopted, it was Gentiles as well. But in God's own wisdom and for a time, there was a separation. And that separation was codified, implemented through these ordinances. And that's where Jesus comes into play. In verse 14, we see that Jesus made peace between the Jew and the Gentile. Well, how did Jesus come and make peace? Was it a big group therapy session? No. Did he come with congresses and treaties? No. Through coercion and force? No. He did it, it says, by abolishing the law. Well, how did he do that? Well, he obeyed it perfectly. Jesus came and he perfectly obeyed every last aspect of this law. And therefore, he fulfilled it. When he obeyed every last aspect of the law, he did what Adam couldn't do. He did what no other human being could do, what none of the Jews can do. He was completely obedient to God, and therefore the law no longer needed to exist. The reason why we don't have to obey the law today is because Jesus did, and if we trust in Christ, then his perfect obedience is credited to our account. All over the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, we've been seeing this language of union with Christ. It says, in him, in him, through him, in him. 
Well, what you see there is that we are in a very real way connected to Jesus. And part of that real connection to Jesus means that his obedience becomes our obedience. The way that that is made available to us is through the cross. By dying on the cross of Christ, excuse me, by dying on the cross, Christ made that obedience to the law available to us and he took our disobedience to the law on himself. Verse 16 says that we are reconciled to God in one body, but that reconciliation had to come through the death of a sacrifice and Christ was that sacrifice. Somebody had to pay the price for our lawlessness and that's a price that we could never pay, but Jesus paid it. And now these two separate bodies, Jews and Gentiles, they're brought together as one. Jew and Gentile, the reason why Jew and Gentile hostility doesn't even make sense in our minds anymore is because as Christians, we don't even have this bifurcated understanding of humanity because we know that the two have been made one. And he didn't make them one by uh, kind of tearing them apart and sewing them back together like a sort of Frankenstein doll. He made them one by uniting them to himself on the cross. You should know, friends, that the only way that any of us can have access to God is through the cross. It's through Jesus' perfect obedience to the law and his payment for our sins that we should have died for. Some of us uh, are used to getting whatever we want. We're used to having access to anything, everything. We're not used to being told no. Our good looks may gain us access. Our family, our money, our education, our charisma. Friends, none of that will gain you access with God. Jesus is the door. And it's only through his death, burial, and resurrection and your subsequent repentance and faith that you can even begin to approach a holy and righteous God. And so once again in today's verses, we see that the Father works through the Son by the power of the Spirit to accomplish all of his good purposes. We've seen so far that vertical reconciliation is from first to last a work of God, and now we see that horizontal reconciliation is also from first to last a work of God. And it had to be this way, friends. It had to be this way. It has to be. Our mutual reconciliation as human beings has to be from first to last a work of God because the divide is so deep. It's not like the divide between Jew and Gentile was merely political, but at least they had their race in common. At least they had some religion in common. There was a complete divide. So God himself had to come and be their peacemaker. And Jesus is not a peacemaker like so many hired experts who come into Fortune 500 companies that are experiencing workplace turmoil where they educate and plead with people in the company to get along together or even sometimes threaten or else, you know, you can go find another job. That's not the kind of peacemaker that Jesus was. Jesus came and he killed the hostility at the root. You know, most of, uh, most of our activism, most of our attempts at uh, killing hostility between people, it's really just like Band-Aids covering up a festering wound. Most of our attempts at killing hostility are like taking a pill that can only treat some of the symptoms but can't actually heal us of any of our diseases. 
But Jesus came and he effectually healed humanity at its core. In the same way that reconciliation to God is accomplished on the cross, it's done, there's no doubt about it. In that same way, reconciliation between humans is done. It's accomplished at the cross. No law or contract could extinguish the flames of this hostility. No social movement could amend the hearts and minds of those who are at enmity with one another. No shame could coerce them to care for each other as image bearers of God. Jesus is so incredible. Where reformers and revolutionaries fail, the cross of Christ succeeds. As verse 16 says so beautifully, Jew and Gentile become one in Jesus and the hostility that once raged has finally been extinguished. It's been a couple of years, but I'm sure you guys can still remember the 2016 uh, election year. It was a straining year for everybody, liberal and conservative alike. People got unfriended on Facebook and unfollowed on Twitter and it was all pretty bad. Those Thanksgiving and Christmas meals didn't go as might be expected. And things have only continued to heat up since then, right? It's not like 2016 was the fever pitch, but now we're on the decline. Things are just continuing to, to ramp up. Maybe we've become a little bit more numb to the effects of it, though. Our nation is at a fever pitch when it comes to hostility on matters of race and politics and religion. And we're beginning to feel that kind of seeping into the walls of the church. Our nation is as divided as it has ever been and we can feel some of that division. Maybe not in this church, but in the capital C Catholic Church, the Church Universal, we can feel that. We can feel the effects of all this. So how do we respond to that? To this world being so tense. You know, policies may help. They could relieve some tension. Electing the right man or right woman to a particular office may kind of relieve some of that pressure, like a valve that you just kind of hit real quick and it drops the pressure down. Social campaigns to educate and equip, they certainly have their place. They have utility and value. But ultimately, these solutions are not good enough to heal our hostility. Christians, I know that this, this has been a particularly difficult sermon because it requires such a lecture approach to understanding some truths of the scripture, but uh, if you've been tuning out, tune back in with me because if you don't take anything else with you today, I want you to take this with you. World peace in a post-Genesis 3 world is a pipe dream. It's not possible. Not only is it not possible, but it's not promised. The only final peace that God has offered and promised this world is a peace that comes through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. We have to keep this reality at the forefront of our minds as we pursue reconciliation between groups of people in this fallen world. As we propose solutions to hostility that we encounter between tribes and peoples. Listen, if we don't keep this reality at the forefront of our minds, we will sell people a false hope 
And in the process, we will also malign the gospel. The only thing that's worse than a Christianity that offers no hope in this world is a Christianity that offers a false hope in this world. A Christianity that more reflects the foolish ideology of utopianism than the more measured promises of the gospel. If you're looking for world peace, where all the peoples of the earth, young and old and rich and poor and black and white and Asian and Arab, where they all live together in love, then you can't only look to what you can do. You have to look at what Christ has already done to accomplish that end. That's why ultimately any offer, any activism of reconciliation that doesn't have the gospel somehow, some way attached to it will fail. In verse 17, we see that Christ came and he preached peace to all. Look there at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. If you remember when we walked through the gospel of Mark, it seemed like Jesus' main prerogative was the preaching of the gospel. He healed people. He did a lot of other good things that adorned the gospel. But Jesus was always preaching. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe. There were times where he was so busy healing people and helping people that he kind of got off track and he had to stop and say, hey, I have to move on so I can go preach at the next town. Jesus' sole focus was a proclamation of a message of victory over sin and death and reconciliation between God and man and man and each other. And you should know that our main job now as ambassadors of reconciliation is to communicate a message. You are certainly welcome and encouraged and in fact, if you don't, you will be unfaithful to adorn that message with your life, with every aspect of your life, right? The way that you live adorns the gospel that you preach. But if we get about the business of trying to pursue reconciliation without proclaiming the message that reconciliation has already been accomplished by Christ, well, then we will be found unfaithful with this ministry that we have received. If it sounds like this sermon is a little bit of a diatribe against social and political action, friends, that could not be further from the truth. This is a plea for a measured <laughs> approach to activism and to political action. What I'm saying here is that ultimately, reconciliation is a promise of the gospel. So any way that we interact with the world should reflect that reality. Point number three, the result. If you look at uh, verse 19, you see the word therefore or so, depending on the version you're reading. And it introduces Paul's concluding thoughts on this gospel of reconciliation that he's been teaching us about. And I, I almost don't have to preach verse 19 because I, I just don't think I can say it any better then Paul says it right here. So then, you, referring to the Gentiles there in the church at Ephesus, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the end result of the gospel. Aliens become citizens. Strangers become family members. Hostility turns into peace and the far off come near to God and to one another. Now in verses 20 through 22, Paul gives us an illustration of what this looks like. Look there at 20 through 22. 
He talks about this household of God and he says that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So we're gonna talk more about the apostles and the prophets next week and their role in building the church but here the image that Paul paints is that of this house this temple that's being built that God's going to live in forever. He's going to indwell with the presence of his spirit. And he envisions Jesus as being the chief cornerstone, which is the most important stone, which allows all the other stones to be laid properly. And then the apostles and the prophets, those are the ones who communicate the word of God in a special place at a special time for a special reason. And and they are the foundation. But then he goes on to say, if you keep reading... Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this temple has a cornerstone that's Christ, a foundation that is the apostles and the prophets, but the bricks in the mortar of this building are you and me, all those who belong to Jesus. And you should know that this is happening even now. You know, our modern culture is so averse to routine and to ordinary. We always want something new and exciting and something to shake up our our kind of droll, uh, bland, monotonous experience. And sometimes we can feel that way about church, you know? Another Wednesday night, staring at the whiteboard, reading the scriptures. Uh, another Sunday, singing and praying and listening to the sermon. Hope it's a good one today, right? That sort of thing. But friends, even now, I mean, right this very second, the Lord is building his temple. And he's doing it with all those who belong to him, even in this room. Every time that a person turns away from their sin and trusts in the finished work of Christ, they are a brick that is attached to that eternal temple. So be quick to share the gospel. Be quick to take what you receive in this room out into that lost and dying world so that you can continue to add bricks Well, God can use you to continue to add bricks to this temple. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but it was pretty common years ago when fundraising to build a building, uh, they would sell bricks that would go into the building. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but like if they were trying to raise 100 grand for a building, right? If you donated $500 or $1,000 or who knows how many dollars, uh, you could have your name put on the brick that would be put into the wall on the side of the building. And that was kind of their incentive to, to raise money. And you know, everybody wants their name attached to something. You can actually look around this church and every something is connected to somebody. Everything is dedicated to somebody. You should know that our name is going to be in the temple of God forever. But the thing is, we don't have to pay anything in order to have our brick put into God's temple. The cost that it would take to have our name in this eternal home of God, that cost was paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord and you don't know what's coming for you eternally, you can be a part of God's house forever. And you don't have to pay. You don't have to bribe. You don't have to perform. All you have to do is turn from your sin and trust and believe what Christ has already done on your behalf. Let's pray.
Father, you are building your church. And we praise you for that. We thank you for not leaving us out in the world. We thank you for reconciling us back to yourself. We pray that you would help us to live out this reconciliation faithfully uh, in all of the relationships that we have in this world with our friends and family members, in our jobs, at the gas station, anywhere where we may be, we pray that we would put off the aroma of love, peace, patience, joy, gentleness, kindness, and every other good thing that belongs to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please stand with me. Should nothing